0: Father, we're grateful for the evening, and just thank you for your grace, and thank you for the opportunity of being here, and just thank you for your goodness and how you provide for us those things that we don't deserve, and we're just so thankful for being able to serve you, and particularly at this time, in a country where uh, we have the opportunity to be um, an example and to glorify you in how we conduct our manner of life, and we're thankful for the potential in your son's name we pray, amen. So we left off when we were on page seventeen and we're moving ourselves along. I think we got what five weeks left? No. Four weeks left. Okay. Four four after no, three after this week. Is it three after this week? Okay, three after this week. Yeah, three after this week. And so um, next week Brother Don's gonna carry two hours and then I'll take up the other two hours when I when he come when I come back. And so we have to, we'll be out of town. So, But anyway, we wanted to deal with the issue of um, 17. We were at uh, repentance. And so this is an interesting word for repentance. And I think it's one of the most misunderstood words in scripture. And so a lot of people don't really understand what it means when it comes to repentance. And so the word, um, and so we were, I was looking at a guy who was talking about the sinner's prayer and I think I put, did I put that down there? No, I didn't put his quote down but it was this guy, his name was um, something Wayne but he had studied the idea Wayne, Gruden. Wayne Gruden? No, not, not Gruden, his last excuse me, his last name was Wayne oh, okay. Yeah, and it wasn't Bruce <laughs> or John or John um, but he had studied repentance and, uh, and the sinner's prayer and how it went back he took it back to the Middle Ages is where it was and and he looked through a lot of the scriptures that people use to say the sinner's prayer and um, and didn't find any correlation from scripture to the sinner's prayer so you can say that the sinner's prayer is not in scripture and I don't care how many times people say it and they do it is the go to and you just won't find it and he did an excellent job in that article and if I remember I'll bring it with me the next time it's really interesting to read but anyway, this issue of repentance, um, how do you know that you're re- you've repented? And so for a lot of people, uh, repentance is an emotional thing that you've got to get up, come down to the altar and drop down. And I don't know if there's a do they have a raindrop or teardrop measure down at the altar that you measure how many tears you have to show or, you know, these kind of things. And so you have that issue of repentance. But the word actually, and you'll see that there's a couple of words that we'll look at that actually deals with the idea of repentance. So you have metanoia is the main word that is used for repentance. Now, I think that what they do, and we we can probably see this, is that they pull from 2 Corinthians 7, 12, the scripture, godly sorrow leads to repentance. Well, that's not talking about initial salvation. He's talking to believers in Corinth, and he's talking about them having a change of mind. So you, you can see that over in 2 Corinthians, there is some grief that is involved there. But in initial salvation, we'll see that this is uh, used in a different way. And so then you have the word metanoia, and then you have the word, and we'll see it, metamelomai, which is a totally different word for uh, metanoia, which is a change of mind. And so you have to really make a distinction between these words. And if you don't understand them, you can get them very confused. And so the word metanoia literally means after, after knowledge. Or consequently, one has a change of mind after an opportunity of having further knowledge. To have a change of mind. And so you have information, and now you're looking at that information, and you say, you know what, that was wrong. And so that it's a, having a change of mind. Now, I give you a couple of definitions here. Kenneth Wiest defines it as a change of mind on reflection, a change of moral thought or reflection which follows moral delinquency. This includes not only the act of changing one's attitude toward an opinion of sin, but also that of forsaking it. Sorrow and contrition with respect to sin are included in the biblical ideal of repentance But these follow and are are consequent upon the sinner's change of mind with respect to it. And so at initial salvation, you look through a lot of the scriptures, you don't really see this idea of grief. Now, if if somebody sees one of those scriptures at initial salvation that actually shows that you're supposed to be grieving, uh, maybe you can show that to me. I haven't seen it. So the one that I have seen deals with 2 Corinthians 7, which deals with a change of mind, a present tense salvation. So what happens? People conflate these. And they conflate them. And so I thought this chart hopefully would be helpful because it's used differently from the unsaved versus the nation of Israel versus the believer in his present tense salvation. And this is the word metanoia. And so notice, just follow through here. Unbelief, knowledge, change of mind, And then I would add here, the proof of the fact that you've changed your mind at initial salvation is you turn, and you start heading in a different direction, right? And so you see people that say that they've been saved, but there is no change in their life. You know, I don't know, God knows. But if you, you can see the Thessalonians as an example of this. Uh, Paul says to them in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, that, that when you believed, you turned to God from idols, right? So they turned and they started going in a different direction. They had a change of mind and they turned and they started going in a different direction. They had a change of mind. Richard Trench gives this definition. He says, a thorough change of heart and of soul and of life and of actions. <clears throat> now, when it comes to blindness uh, of, the, of Israel, knowledge, and uh, this idea of having a change of mind, and this is in the future, and they've not had a change of mind at this point, they're going to turn. But notice John said that he preached a baptism of repentance, a baptism of repentance. <clears throat> now, <laughs> words matter, context matter. And so a lot of people conflate this baptism of repentance that John preached with initial salvation for the believer today and also I think present in salvation today and so all of these three are conflated together to be one thing right and I think that that's where the confusion is coming from now let me give you an example look we can really distinguish this in Acts chapter 13 that the baptism of repentance was not to the unsaved man today that's not who it was for now I just love it when scripture interprets scripture because it just hands it to us on a silver platter. You don't even have to know Greek or Hebrew or anything. It's, it's so obvious to see. So now notice in Acts chapter 13, Paul, so there's two chapters, and we would like to tell you that And when we come to um, Acts, two chapters that are dealing with uh, a historical narrative of Israel. It's the seventh chapter of Acts, and this is more of a general narrative of Israel, And this is Paul when he's at Antioch in Acts chapter 13. And notice what he says here. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about that time of 40 years, he suffered their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up to them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed has God raised To his promise, uh, uh, God, according to his promise, raised unto, notice, Israel, a Savior, Jesus. Now, when did he do this? Well, we see it in verse 24. When John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of the church. I'm sorry. That's not there, is it? All the people of who? Israel. Israel. So the baptism of repentance that was preached. And so to use what Don says that we say all the time, we're not making this up. (laughs) It's right here. Matthew chapter three is the baptism of repentance. And who is it to all the people of Israel? So he sets the context there. Right. Very clear and clean context is set there. We don't even have to guess about what's going on when we go back to Matthew chapter three, that he's not talking to the church. He's not talking to the unsaved Gentiles. He's talking about a baptism of repentance to the nation of Israel. And so you can see it over in Matthew chapter 3. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene. And remember, here's the context here is that these people were waiting for the return of Jehovah. And they knew that there was going to be a return and they had some understanding of when uh, of of, of his, his return. And remember when they went out when John the Baptist uh, in John chapter 1 and when they went out to John the Baptist in the wilderness, they asked him several questions and those questions were pointed questions for a reason, right? What did they say to him? Are you Elijah? Are you that prophet? Well, why did they ask him that? Because they knew that one, those two were going to come. And so they're trying to figure out who are you? And so when he said, I am not, they kind of uh, rejected it. So notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, the kingdom of heavens is at, is at hand. Or really, we could say the kingdom from the heavens. And so there was a, a promise that God was going to set up his kingdom upon the earth. And so John the Baptist is telling them, it's here. This promise that you've been waiting for is here. Now, most church people don't understand that, and so we're so busy allegorizing, trying to make it fit our vernacular today, that most people just look right over what he's saying. They don't understand the context behind it. Another good example is what Don was talking about last week with the word of the Lord, right? To most people, that means nothing, but to the Jewish mind, that meant a lot. So when he says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, they understood that that had context, you see. And so we just look right past it. Many people just allegorize it away. And so notice he says, For this is he that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, um, prepare you the way of the Lord, of, of Jehovah, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out him to, uh, uh, out to J- him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about J- Jordan, and were baptized of him, and Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many of uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come unto his baptism, he said, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so they understood what that meant—that there is a coming wrath—and we know what that means. And notice in verse eight: "Bring forth therefore fruit, meat for repentance, and think not to say, within yourself, we have Abraham to our father.' Now I don't think that you—you you have never said that you had Abraham as your father, have you, Joe? I don't think you've ever said that Abraham was your father. Um, well, I've never said that. My father's name was Charles, not <laughs> Abraham. But they understood Abraham to be their father, the originator of the nation. And so, uh, for I say unto you that God is able to, of these stones, to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now here's the point, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water. Now this unto, you could really translate it because of the preposition here, because of repentance. So he was baptizing them because they had a change of mind. Proof that they had a change of mind, they went out to him. And the ones that had a change of mind, he would baptize them. Now who is this to? Israel. The nation of Israel. If you try to make it fit any other context, you're going to make a mess of Scripture. And so, notice. But and we just saw again uh, over in uh, we just saw again over in um, uh, over in get rid of that phone. We just saw again over in um, Acts uh, thirteen that this was to the nation of Israel, and that's important to see. And so, there was a baptism to Israel. There was a baptism, or excuse me, a repentance concerning Israel, a repentance concerning unsaved, and concerning the saved. And this is important to see, but we'll get to this one, um, this uh, repentance concerning the unsaved. I want to show you the two different words that are used here for repentance. Uh, I have them somewhere. There we go. And so you have metanoia, which means to have a change of mind. Now, this one is really interesting, Right? It's the word metomelomai. But you know in the English it's translated repentance. But it means something completely different. Now if this actually was repentance. You can ask yourself the question as we look at these contexts. Then why was Judas condemned to hell? Didn't he have a change of mind? But do you know the word that is used for Judas repented? It's this word. And what does that mean? It's the kind of repentance which only sorrow for something done and wishing it undone. Yes. Would you say regret would be the other yeah, I, Yeah. absolutely. He regretted the outcome. Oh, you ever had something happen and you just regretted it? and You say, oh, I wish I could have. Yeah, you didn't really dislike the fact of what happened, what you did. You just regretted the the way that it came down the pike, right? If you had it to do over again, man, I wish I'd have did it differently, but I would have done it. <laughs> and in that instance, we know why Judas did it, because of the fact that you know, he was indwelt by Satan. But notice in Matthew chapter 27, you see that, Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. This is used a couple of times, as it's really worth noting um, those times where it's used. So in Matthew chapter 27, in verse 1, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him unto Pontius Pilate, the governor. And then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned. Notice how they translated it, repentant. And I would say, and Don really gave a good definition there, he regretted. He regretted it. Well, if he'd have had a change of mind, wouldn't that have solved it? Right. Wouldn't it have solved his destiny? No, he didn't have a change of mind. He regretted the outcome. The way that it came down the pike. And so he says he re- and he he was condemned or he repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the uh, chief priests and the elders. Now Here you see it in 2 Corinthians 7 on a couple of occasions in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now here it's used, I believe, of present tense salvation. It's not used of initial salvation. Now I think this is what is happening. They're taking this because it's associated with grief. And they're conflating this with initial salvation, right? And so they're saying, oh, here's grief over here. It's got to be over here at initial salvation. And you don't see it in any context at initial salvation. You just don't. I know people would like to make it over there. But we don't just drag scripture and make it say what we want it to say. Now notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul uses it in verse 8. <laughs> and this is interesting uh, context he used it in. He says, for I though I made you sorry with a letter. Uh, I do not repent. And notice the word there. If you haven't done a linear, it's our word here. Metamelomai. I don't regret it. <laughs> right? And he, why? He says, because I wrote the letter for it to have the reaction that it actually did. And so, and then he says, though I did repent, then he uses a different word for metal, uh, I mean, excuse me, he uses my again. I did repent, for I perceived that the same epistle had made you sorry, though it were but for a season. And so he said, yeah, on the second hand, I did regret it because of the way that you did respond though so the reason he wrote the epistle was for them to respond in the way that they actually did. And notice in verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed. And so that word for sorry, actually, uh, here is a, a form of the word, lupe. Uh, and so notice it's in the passive, which means that something caused them to be made sorrowful. And uh, it was the letter, You sorrowed to repentance. And so now no, you were made grieved uh, un, into repentance uh, for you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. Now this raises a question. You have people who will say they will do a deed and they will actually act like they're sorry. Man, there are people who can crack crocodile te- tears and they can make it look like, oh, I'm so sorry. And all the while as they're thinking about that, they probably have a dagger ready to stab you on the other side of your back. And so tears don't necessarily, in and of themselves, mean that people have had a change of mind. And so in our society, we are we are st- stuck on that. We're suckers for tears. Because if we see somebody who would cry, oh, look at them, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I believe you. <laughs> No, not necessarily. And so notice what Paul says here. Verse 10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance towards salvation. Grief after a godly sorrow worketh repentance and salvation, not to be repented of, really not to be regretted of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Uh, Let's see, we're going down to 12. uh, No, it's there, 10. So this godly sorrow are a grief after a godly sort worketh um, worketh out um, repentance or um, yeah worketh repentance and so I try to give you a uh, so here you have the word lupe which is grief and then this so this there's a godly grief that's here, this kata here, this preposition is giving you is a measurement. So here's how God's grief is measured, or God's repentance is measured. So if there's a standard of measurement here, this is how you measure God's uh, a, a repentance from God's sort is that there is a grief that is associated with it. But this is talking about present tense salvation. Present tense salvation. Now I I don't see this word lupe which is the word for grief, used at initial salvation. Now, you might cry at initial initial salvation, but you know, I don't see that as a sign of salvation. Or, uh, when you're in present in salvation, you see that someone could have grief, and if it's from God, that that grief is motivated by God, it's obviously going to be of a genuine sort. Right? Yeah? When you Yeah, I think so. In this context, it would probably be. Um, right. Right. Or you could say according to deity. I mean, if you wanted to be more accurate with it. Uh, but here I think it is the Holy Spirit that is doing this because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. that You're going to be grieving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to be uh, you're going to, you can put out or extinguish the Holy Spirit's ministry. So you have all these things that are going on. And so I think that the Holy Spirit probably is provoking you in this way. And what is a, a, a good, what is a measurement of it? Well, there's, there's a grief. When you realize that you have done something in your present in salvation, you have sinned, there is a grief that accompanies it, can accompany it. And um, and so you you feel horrible for what you've done, right? And then... You turn, metanoia, you turn and you head in a different direction. But I think what is happening, so you have this in Second Corinthians that is in a specific context talking to believers. That people are dragging over here into initial salvation and saying it applies here as well. Now, I, I don't have a, I'm just assuming that that's how they came up with this conclusion. That there is grief. Uh, because there is a grief in, in repentance as it relates to your present in salvation but I don't see this used with initial salvation. Now, if you see that, you let me know, and I stand to be corrected, but I I haven't seen it. And so repentance during the ministry of John the Baptist differs from the repentance in this dispensation of grace, as we saw uh, on our chart. And I, I wanted to give you these two verses because it's just the use of the word grief, lupe, and how you see it used in other places in Scripture. So the Lord in the upper room said, but because I have said these things unto you, it's actually translated, sorrow has filled your heart. And so here you can see it, an emotional thing here in the 20th verse, very, very I say to you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow be, will be turn to joy. And so it's a sorrow that can occur with um, having a change of mind. Um, notice down on D on the bottom of page 17, repentance at initial salvation results in a change of mind Uh, about God that leads to salvation. Now notice uh, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, a lot of people believe that as you talk about um, the torment that people will face, that that will surely cause men to repent. And uh, I'm mindful of, um, as someone, I think Dr. Schaefer talked about it, sinners in the hands of an angry God, Well, Courtney took that in English literature here at Titusville High, and they had to study Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was one of the best um, sermons uh, preached, I guess, from a literary point of view. And um, what did he do? He tried to scare people straight. And he talked about hell and what it's going to be like in hell and how God's going to hold you over the flames (laughs) and the possibility of the torment. And the torture that will come from the fear that you will feel uh, of this happening, and but you know when you look in scripture again, scripture paints a different story. You can tell people all of the stories of torment and torture, and that's not going to ch- cause anybody to change. They won't. Yeah. when they realize it's God judging them right. God, what do they do? They hide. They don't, right. they don't change their mind. They hide. From God. Right. And even in the 16th chapter it goes on to say that uh, when they see that those judgments are from God they don't and I, if I'm not mistaken I think I have it here they don't even use the word they won't repent. They'll see all of these judgments that are raining down upon the earth and it, you know what it does? It doesn't call them to, cause them to repent it causes them to double down. And when you understand the fallen nature of man, the fallen nature of man is such that it doesn't respond to that. It really doesn't. And so notice you can see it here. I guess it's like my mother used to say, you can win more people with honey than you can with vinegar. Isn't that the saying that they used to say? Well, from a God's point of view, he doesn't use honey, but he used goodness. Goodness. Notice in Romans chapter 2. Uh, and notice in verse 3, And thinketh thou, O man, that judges them which doeth, uh, does such things, and doeth the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God, or despises thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance knowing that the goodness of God, or like really the kindness of God, leads thee to repentance. And so the kindness of God is what causes men to have a change of mind. It is not talking about what is going to happen to them when they die. It's, it's an odd thing that you can tell people that they're going to hell. And I've seen people joke about it. Well, we'll just get with our friends down there. We'll have a big party. <laughs> and you've seen people joking about this, right? It doesn't scare them at all. They don't seem to even be, have any kind of an understanding of what is facing them. And so that doesn't really cause them to have a change of mind. And so repentance for the unbeliever occurs by believing the facts of the gospel. And so there are several <laughs> factors preventing this repentance in the unbeliever. So if you were to really, if it wasn't for the sin nature and then Satan blinding the unsaved mind, there perchance would be a, a chance that people would believe the facts of the gospel, right? I mean, why would you not? If you just told them Christ died on the cross for our sins and that he was buried and raised. If there was nothing that was impeding them, you would probably think, yeah, okay, yeah. That's true. I could see that. Uh, but you have this issue in Second Corinthians 4, where we know for a fact that there, Satan is at work. And what is he doing? He's blinding the minds of the unbeliever. And so now this is pretty insidious, what he's doing, because I think that he's allowing the thoughts to reach a certain point. But then when they come to a conclusion, he blocks the proper conclusion of the mind so that the mind doesn't reach the proper conclusion, right? And the word that is used there is that, and we've talked about that in church service, that word noema, and how Satan works against the conclusions of the mind. It's that part of the mind where it's beginning to come to a conclusion. And so notice you see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and you can see people who are with you as you give them the gospel for a certain distance, but then you get to a point and they just say, ah, can't go there with you. Okay. A man raised from the dead? Who is? We heard this here recently that someone was talking about it, really. Oh, it was the uh, guy from the World Economic Forum just making a mockery of Christianity and uh, believing that it's so silly to believe that a man could rise from the dead. And so he doesn't believe that. And, uh, well, we know why. And you can see it in this passage here, verse 3. But if our gospel be hid... Uh, Really, since our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine unto them. And so Satan blinds the workings of the mind of the unsaved so that they can't see. So you're going to tell me, and I've seen people who say that I can make someone believe, I can get someone to believe. I just had somebody just recently told me that they're going to take someone to church and they're going to get them to believe. And I just took, I just shook my head. What do you even say to that? You don't seem to understand what you're up against. And so they don't. And so, boy, if you can get somebody to believe in spite of the fact that you have. This, inferior, this uh, superior being who's blinding their minds. Ooh. I'm going to begin to change my mind about you. <laughs> you must have some kind of superpower, right? And then who are you that you can do this? Because we know only God can do it, right? Only God can do it. And you can see it. Well, uh, Let me just show you one little side note here in, in the Gospel of John chapter 1. It's interesting what he says here in, in the Gospel of John chapter 1, that people are not born out from the will of man. It's not out from you and me that people come to believe that God is the author of this. And it takes God because you understand that uh, um, the one who is blinding them, you, don't have, you and I do not have the ability to, um, to overcome him. And so notice in verse, uh, let's pick it up in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of that light, of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighted every man that comes into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and I would say here it's his own things but his own people received him not. So that's the conundrum there. He came to his own things. His own things listened to him, but his own people didn't. But as many as received him, he gave to them power, really, the authority to become sons of God even to them that believe in his name. I think Don was talking about this recently. And so in the early, you don't receive authority today to become sons of God. You are sons of God. But on the other side of the day of Pentecost, those people received authority to become sons of God whenever the new dispensation started. Nobody today is receiving authority to become sons of God. Today you believe the facts of the gospel, you are sons of God. And you can see that in 1 John 5. And so that was a special thing happening there during Christ's earthly ministry. Now notice uh, <clears throat> verse 13, which were born not, notice, you have a ek, uh, ek preposition here, which is showing you their origin of this, how they were born, not out from blood, nor out from the flesh, nor out from the will of man, but out from God. God is the source of that salvation. So unless God raises the blinders for someone to believe, I don't care. And, and the church has come up with all of these different tactics and things that they do to try to get people to believe and um, I like what Pastor Dave's saying all they're doing is bringing in the tares. that's what they're doing, they're just bringing the terrors into the church and so if you can call someone to be saved then I guess you're their savior because what I see here that God is the one that has to remove the blinders for people to be able to see And so notice, human depravity also blinds the unsaved. Now look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18. Now this is interesting as well. Um, Paul uses a word here that's just really interesting. So he describes the state of the unsaved man as to why he can't believe. And, you know, we use the statement about crazy people today. The light's on and nobody's home. Uh, Well, you could say this about the unsaved man, right? The light's light's not even on. And nobody is certainly home (laughs) from a spiritual point of view with regard to being uh, aware of the life of God. And so notice in chapters uh, 4 and verse 17, <clears throat> this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as the Gentiles walk. And how do they walk? <clears throat> in the vanity of their minds, or really, <clears throat> the uselessness of their minds. And you say, well, it's not useless. It look like they're accomplishing a lot of things. I mean, these guys are becoming rich. They're becoming actors. They're becoming sports stars. But really, when you really think about it, if the world was to end today, would any of that matter to you? None of that would really matter to you. It couldn't get you past this life, you see. And any of those people that die. And you remember the, the, the book uh, uh, was that talked about the fact that you never see a U-Haul at a hearse uh, or at, uh, following a hearse. Why? Because none of these things that you accomplish in this life really matter beyond this life. If they're not done from the basis of God and what God's will is for your life, it's all pointless Anything that you do outside of that is just pointless. And I think some of the unsaved people, once they get a certain amount of riches, they begin to see that. I think that that's what Solomon saw. When he tried to indulge himself in the world system and he found out, man, what is this? I've tried all of this. I've tried this. I've tried that. It's just pointless. It just doesn't even matter, right? So outside of God's will for your life, if if you're operating outside of that, everything else, everything is just really pointless. Uh, okay, I'll give you an example. I remember when I was waiting a long time for Oklahoma to win the national championship in football. This shows you the pointlessness of it, I'm sure many women would say, yes, that's pointless. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a great example. And then when they won it, I was like, oh. It was the whole thing of getting there, right? And once they won, it was just so such a downer. It was pointless. So now what? It didn't mean anything. And so you see that in life, that you—it's the striving to get there many times that's more in, in entertaining or exciting to people than the actually uh, accomplishing it. Why? Because this life doesn't have things that are able to sustain you. They are pointless in and of themselves. And so notice in verse 18, he says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated uh, from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of the hearts, or really the hardness of their hearts. And you can see that, man, with a lot of unsaved people that just their hearts are like petrified and you just the more we go down the line, you're looking at a generation of people coming along. They're more and more petrified in that day. You can't. What? God? No, i don't want to hear that. Right. Uh, but notice they walk in the vanity or the uselessness of their minds. And so you have this human depravity. It prevents the unsafe from seeking God. Human depravity prevents the unsafe from having a change of mind. And so notice, and Don was referring to this, and here's another example of it in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20. I don't think we know who we're dealing with. You think that these unsaved people, it's kind of like these people, I I read a story, did you guys see that story of the man who went over to, I think it was South Africa, and he killed a lion? And he's sitting there with the picture of the lion, the dead lion in front of him, and I don't know how it happened, but they said that the brother of the lion killed the man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how that happened. They didn't tell you in the story how it happened. But apparently the brother of the lion ended up, after that man took that picture, killed him. <laughs> so, and I don't even know how they knew it was the brother. <laughs> I mean, They'd do a DNA test or what. I don't know. But notice here in Revelation, you'll see that you have this issue that <clears throat> the blindness causes people, the unsaved man. So, just like that lion, you know, uh, um, you think that this lion and you got people who have these pets and stuff, all these exotic pets, and then they turn on them and they're shocked. It's the same thing with the unsaved people. They are who you thought they were. And we're shocked when they do something that we didn't expect. And I don't know why we are. But notice in verse 20, <clears throat> you see it. Um, well, let's get some context here. Verse 14 saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loose, which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000. Uh, and I heard the number of them, and thus I saw. The horses and the vision and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and of brimstone and their heads of the horses were as the heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone for by these were the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths for their power is in their mouth and in their tails for their tails were like unto serpents and and had heads. Uh, with them, that they do hurt. And the rest of the men uh, were not killed of these plagues, yet repented not of their works. Now you would think in the tribulation period where they're seeing all of these different trumpet judgments and vile judgments and they see that it's from God, and we'll turn over to 16 since we're over here, you would think, oh man, every single person that saw that would say, okay God, you remember they have this um, axiom in uh, unsafe unsaved world, a come to Jesus moment, right? You would think that these activities would cause them to be able to say, God, you're in control. And what you see is that they don't. So if the prospects of suffering would cause people to have a change of mind, it should happen here. And it doesn't. And so notice he says, And so they repented not of their works out of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries. All of these, notice works of the flesh here, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. Now there's satanic there. But over in the 16th chapter, I think it is, you see it again in a similar way. Of Revelation. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And the 16th chapter, we're having a good day here. My mind was able to remember it. <laughs> I was a little concerned. Notice in uh, verse five. And I heard the angel of the waters say, thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be because thou hast judged us. For they have shed the blood, of the, the blood of saints and of prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and notice they said, We give, God. Notice, this shows you how bad it is in the unsaved man. Oh, yeah, global warming. Here's your global warming here. These people who are warning global warming, they're probably going to be shocked when they see it because they don't really believe it themselves. But when it really comes, they're going to be shocked. There's your global warming. And they blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Well, wouldn't you think that by the specter of judgment would change the minds of the unsaved people? No, no. And, and you just see it and it goes on and on. And so notice down in uh, verse 10, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. Now, I think this is Washington, D.C. here. And they gnawed, <laughs> they gnawed their tongues for pain. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they repented not of their deeds. And so it goes on. And so you see that the fallen nature of man is so wicked. It will not be subject. And you can see it with people, right? You get people angry with you. And before you know it, they won't be reasoned with. Right? And so, here they are, and you, you, here's God of the universe. Who's judging them? Nope. I ain't changing my mind. And so, you have it. And so, Scripture gives several proofs of salvation, for the unsaved man leads to repentance. And so, we saw it in Revelation uh, 9, 20 and 21, and then you see it. That is re- uh, equated with salvation in Hebrews 6 6. Let's look at that one. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 6. Now, here's the chapter that many people say that, um, is proof that you can lose your salvation, but actually it proves the opposite of what they say. Uh, and so here you see. There's a point in time that when these believers believe that they had had a change of mind, right? And what he's saying that it's impossible for you to go back here again to the beginning. Because when you go back and you say, oh, what Christ did is not enough. And you see this happens in a lot of altar calls, right? I've seen a lot of people that go down every week, right? Tortured souls. It's really sad. And they don't think that the work that Christ did was enough. And notice he says here, if they, uh, let's go back and get some context. Verse four, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened or really illuminated. Now, you couldn't be illuminated if you weren't saved. You cannot be illuminated if you weren't saved. How can you be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and you're not saved? You're not. We just saw over in Ephesians that the unsaved man, his, his uh, mind is darkened. Um. And have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Same, the same here. And have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. And so going back to the time where they had had a change of mind initially and believed, you can't go back and say, okay, i got to start all over. I mean, you see a lot of believers saying this today. Okay, God, I messed up. I want to do over what do they call it in golf, a mulligan. <laughs> I want a mulligan. I want to do over. I messed up. Huh? A reset. A reset, right? <laughs> right, a reset. Um, to renew them again to repentance, seeing that they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open, open chain. And so, what you're saying is that the work that Christ accomplished is not enough. I got to go back and start all over again. Right? And so this is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. It's teaching actually the opposite of that. Uh, and so, but you can see that repentance here is equated with salvation. And then uh, let's look see if we can finish the rest of this page out. In Acts 11:18, you see the repentance of the Jews was equated by um, the Gentiles was equated by the Jews as being synonymous with salvation in Acts 11:18. Acts eleven eighteen. So Courtney's going through the book of Acts is really a very fascinating book, and in the eleventh chapter, you see what's interesting in this chapter is how Paul goes up, uh, Barnabas goes up, and he gets the apostle Paul, in um, <clears throat> um, when he was in Tarsus. But in eighteen, you see, uh, let's go back just to get some context here, in verse. Uh, and this was done three times. This is Peter, and he's uh, sitting upon the housetop, and he's seeing this vision. And he was drawn up again into heaven, and, and behold, immediately there were three men already come unto the house where I was sent from Caesarea unto me. And the Spirit bade me uh, go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me and were entered into the man's house, and he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water. And so notice this parenthetical scripture here, John baptized with water, why the baptism? Now, again, this is consistent with what we saw earlier. That was a totally different kind of baptism. And, but you shall be baptized, how? With the Holy Spirit. Notice that distinction there. Verse 17. For so much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that, we, uh, that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they held their peace, and glorified God saying, uh, then have God also to the Gentiles granted repentance or a change of mind unto life or really into uh, eternal life. And so you have this change of mind and what did it result in that they were able to uh, um, be able to gain into eternal life. And so God granted this. And, then, and what's interesting here is that God did it, Right. God is the one that that causes this uh, to occur, and I, I think that we don't really see how pathetic you and I really are. Okay, I won't talk about you, maybe you have some esteem issues, but hey, we are pathetic people. God has to do it all. And when you understand that, it doesn't really make you feel bad. I don't go around feeling bad about myself, I feel better. That I know my true state. That if God doesn't do it, it ain't going to get done. He's the one that does it all. As so, notice, the object of repentance is varied in the New Testament. You see that verb form of metanoia is used 20 to- twenty-two times in the New Testament, thirteen times in the epistles, six times regarding the behavior in the church. And you know um, the church is called to this uh, on several occasions, and we won't go further. We'll stop right there and I'll pick up, uh, Lord willing, uh, when we return. Uh, Otherwise, you can ask the Lord about it in the hair and you probably won't even be thinking about it. (laughs) Be thinking about something else.